Well, with uh, the Gospel Project, as Andy prayed, I tried uh, earlier on in the service when everybody was in just to communicate with you the basic facts of where we are in that process. Um, the extent to which uh, we all uh, heard it all, uh, it was uh, quite lively with the kids. But do um, engage with the information that will be given you. If you have questions, then please do speak to me or your small group leader. And if you're not in a small group, as I said, please take one of these uh, leaflets and come along on Sunday afternoons so that you can be uh, part of this vision for us as a church. Let me say just a little bit more about it. In many ways, for me and for the elders and uh, Sam and Andy, as we've engaged a lot on this in the past few months, it has evolved in our thinking from where it started, which really was writing material to help people learn how to explain Mark's gospel to somebody who is not a Christian, your friend. That's where it was, and that's a good aim, to something which is more ready to wait on what God may do. So, will, when I'm equipped to do this, will it be that I read the gospel with my non-Christian friend? Maybe. Will it be that God equips us as a church and brings people into the church who don't know Jesus and who want to? And we find ourselves, as we have engaged in this, at the same time, he has done that. I suspect that may well happen. Over the past few months, as we've begun to engage in the training for this, every few weeks I hear of somebody in the church who has asked or been asked by someone to read Mark's gospel with them. Long before you get to the point where we're all trained to do it. That's how God will work. I want us to get away in our minds from thinking that in six or seven weeks' time, I need to be equipped to sit down in a coffee shop and read Mark with somebody who is not a Christian. That may happen for some of us, but I expect it will be much more fluid and God will have all sorts of plans for this. It may be that we will be equipped to do something in one, two, three, four, or five years. We don't know. Almost certainly, God will equip us as a church, and when He finds a building for us as a church, these two things will coordinate. Now, all of this necessitates our engagement as a church family, all of us. It's about our collective heart for this, as much as the time we need to set aside to be trained. It's a kind of heart vision. And if we engage in this with our hearts as a church, it'll develop our culture as a church to think and act evangelistically. Now, I was very struck by that at Ed's service of Thanksgiving yesterday. The room was divided in two. You could tell that 
most people were crying at some stage. But the way people grieve is different than if you are a Christian and not a Christian. And I just saw this mass of people yesterday, and I was convicted, although didn't say it out loud in the middle of the service, why we are engaging in this as a church, that we might be able, when God creates the opportunities, and it's Him who will do it, not us, to explain the gospel to people who are not Christians. Let me just before we turn to Mark, read out what I've asked the small groups to encourage you in these groups to pray, and you'll all get copies of this uh, literature. Pray that the Gospel Project vision will change our heart as a church, developing our culture to think, live, and act evangelistically. Pray that we will rediscover Jesus with a freshness and a clarity, and our faith will deepen. Pray that in rediscovering Jesus, we will be moved and liberated to share His message with others. Pray that we will know the joy and the privilege of leading people to faith in Jesus. Pray that God will bring into Chalmers many people who are searching for Him. And then finally, pray for protection from spiritual opposition. All over Mark's gospel, on every page, is opposition when the message of the gospel is spoken. But on the same pages in Mark's gospel, where there is opposition, there is the promise that the message will advance. Now, that just gives you, I hope, a sense of the heart that we have as elders behind this uh, project. And I commend it to you, to your prayers, and to all of our hearts. Now, we turn this morning to the beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Now, in our small groups or on Sunday afternoons in the repeats, we'll learn how Mark writes his gospel to lead people to faith in Jesus. And thus, we will, God willing, be equipped to read it with an individual or within a group and explain it for that purpose. But on Sundays, and also to an extent in our small groups, our primary purpose in studying Mark is different. Our primary purpose on Sundays is to rediscover the Lord Jesus. Now, for many of us, this material is familiar. We know Mark's gospel. We know its content. We know the stories. So, what are we going to learn? Fresh insights, maybe. Fresh angles, maybe. But that is not the purpose that I have in mind. The purpose I have in mind is that we will rediscover the living Jesus. That we will not rediscover 
familiar truths about him, although we will, but primarily we will rediscover him, his power, or his love, his compassion, his authority, his selflessness, his sacrifice, and his glory. That we will rediscover him and feel almost that rediscovery in our relationship with him. What makes me want to share the gospel is an acute sense of the knowledge of who Jesus is and what it means that he is my Lord. It's him with me by his Spirit that motivates me. So like Levi in chapter 2, I pray that when we hear the call of Jesus, we will feel the power of the Holy Spirit that makes the call of Christ effectual in the life of a believer. That we cannot but do what that call says. Or like Peter in chapter 8, I pray that amidst all the stuff out there about who Jesus is, that as a church, we will be clear in our conviction that He is the Messiah. And we'll know what that means. Like the blind beggar in chapter 10. I pray that God will open our eyes, not simply to see who Jesus is, but to make us willing to follow Him along the road that is the way of the cross. And I pray that like that woman in chapter 14, who took the most expensive thing in her possession, that jar of perfume of pure nard, and cracked it open and poured it over the head of her Lord, I pray that we will do for Jesus the most extravagant and devoted thing that we can simply because we love Him. And I pray that like the Roman soldier who stood at the foot of the cross of Christ, we will look up to Jesus Christ hanging on His cross at Calvary in all His weakness with His head bowed, and say, surely this is the Son of God. And like that soldier, be undone by grace and mercy. Now that is an altogether different experience than sitting down for six weeks and learning how to explain a Bible book. You see the connection needs to be there. That's about our hearts. 
in the preparation for the gospel project, one of the people who was involved in designing it, I was saying this kind of thing to them when we met, and, and he said to me, why don't you just say it out loud? So I've just done it. Right, let's read Mark 1, 1 to 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, the introduction to Mark's gospel, verse 1, tells us who Jesus is, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark lets the cat out of the bag right at the start, and so he breaks all the rules of fiction that keeps the reader in suspense. But Mark, of course, is not writing fiction. He is writing factual eyewitness testimony about Jesus, the Son of God. And what he writes, verse 1, is the gospel. Now, that phrase, the gospel, literally means the good news. He is writing about good news. It is important stuff. It is life-changing stuff. And think of the context of yesterday's funeral. It is really important stuff. Let me define some words. Jesus means the Lord saves. Christ or Messiah means God's anointed King who will rescue us. Son of God means that Jesus is not just a man, but God. Now, that's verse 1. And in the rest of his gospel, Mark explains in more detail who Jesus is. He gives us eyewitness testimony and evidence. He calls us to follow Him and explains what that looks like. 
And like all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark takes us quickly to the cross and the resurrection as his main focus. About a quarter of his book is on the cross and the resurrection. Now, in verses 2 to 8, his theme is pointing to Jesus. You see that on the service sheet. What Mark is doing in these verses is turning the spotlight on Jesus. Last night, Sally and I went to see The Sound of Music at the Playhouse. It was my Christmas present to her, and she cried all the way through. Uh, I didn't. All the way through. And uh, when the principal player comes on stage for their show-stopping number, and there are many of them in The Sound of Music, all the spotlights in the theater are trained on them. Everything is focused on them, and they are the center of attention. And that is exactly what Mark is doing in these opening verses. He's training the spotlights on Jesus, who is the center of all things. Christianity is about Jesus. One of the most encouraging things you see when you study a book like Mark's Gospel with people who are not Christians is to watch the spark in their eyes when they discover that Christianity is not about a lot of the stuff they thought it was about, and they discover it is about the Lord Jesus. And that's all. Christianity is about Him, and following Him, and knowing Him, and living with His Spirit. Part of what it means for us as a church to rediscover Jesus may be that we are liberated into the simplicity of faith in Jesus. I was asked yesterday by many people, how are you surviving without a building? And when we are in a building here, and I said, well, it has its challenges, but part of that liberates us into knowing what it means to be a follower of Jesus who is dependent on Him. And part of what we will rediscover in Mark's gospel is the liberty that comes from simplicity of faith in Him. What have we just sung? All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. We do not need anything else. I gladly bow the knee and worship Him alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. It is all about Him. So, how does Mark train the spotlight in Jesus? Well, he quotes in verses 2 and 3 from the prophecy of Isaiah. You see that in the Bible text. Now, Isaiah is a major book in the Old Testament that points forward to the coming of Jesus. And in quoting from Isaiah, Mark is making the point 
not just that this major book in the Old Testament points to Jesus, but the whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And given that the major focus of the New Testament points to Jesus, we can rightly say that the whole Bible points to Him. Every verse in Scripture is a spotlight that is trained on Jesus Christ. Scripture is God's revelation to us of what Jesus is like. The Bible is not a manual for how to live life. The Bible is a revelation from God about His life, Jesus. Now, the quotation from Isaiah describes specifically the coming of a messenger who is to prepare the way of the Lord by pointing people to Jesus. His name is John, often referred to as John the Baptist. John stands before us at the beginning of Mark's gospel, representative of all who have come before Jesus and after Him as witnesses to Him. John stands, therefore, on the threshold of Mark's gospel for every prophet, every minister, every believer whose role is to point people to Jesus. And how did John point people to Jesus? By speaking a message. He preached, verse 4, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He preached about repentance, which means recognizing our need of forgiveness and turning to God for it. And he preached about forgiveness, dealing with that fundamental problem in the human heart that separates humanity from God. That was John's message. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. And along with his message, he baptized people with water as a visual sign of forgiveness. Now, John was quite a preacher. When I worked in London before coming to Edinburgh, part of my job was organizing conferences for ministers. And they were big conferences, often up to a thousand ministers. And we'd have our lineup of high-profile speakers, gifted people whom God had used. But not one of them was a patch on John the Baptist. By all accounts, he had a brilliant and successful ministry. Verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the River Jordan. And to be fair, his clerical dress was a little unconventional, but people in big numbers flocked to hear him. He is the greatest prophet. He was perhaps the greatest preacher. And according to Jesus, in Matthew, he was the greatest man ever born of a woman. But John was crystal clear that compared to Jesus, he had no authority and no power. And his job was only to point people to Jesus. That is clear to us from verses 7 and 8. Just look at that with me. John preached, saying, After me comes 
one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie from his feet. In verse 8, John says effectively, I will baptize you with water. All I will do is get you wet in the river Jordan. Jesus Christ, who comes after me, will baptize you with his Holy Spirit. He will change your hearts. He will change your life. Now, there's a really important lesson for us all here. The role of every Christian believer, not just every minister, but every Christian believer, is to speak the message. What is the message? Repent for the forgiveness of sins. There is no other message that will lead people to Jesus Christ. There is no message other than you need to be forgiven, and forgiveness is found in Him. But that message must be spoken always with an eye away from us to Him, because it is in Him alone that forgiveness is to be found. You and I are simply voices crying in the wilderness pointing people to Jesus. The preacher or the evangelist or the person reading the Bible with someone who is not a Christian should not be concerned with what people think of him or her, but what people think of the Lord. The preacher has no power. Only the Lord Jesus has power. Likewise, the hearer should not be thinking about the preacher, but about the Lord Jesus what do you make of me? That is irrelevant. You can roast me over lunch. But what do you make of the Lord Jesus? That's what matters. I suspect that after the funeral yesterday, a lot of people roasted me over dinner because you say the gospel. But that matters not a jot. What matters is what we make of Him. Pointing to Jesus, all Scripture does. Every prophet, every minister, every Christian's role is to point people to Jesus. The spotlight is to be on Him. He is the center. He is what Christianity is about. And part of what it means to rediscover Him is to rediscover His absolute centrality and what it means to be a Christian, and what it means to be an evangelist, which is to point people to Him. Now, what that does in your heart, and in our heart as a church, is brings a wonderful liberty that you and I are not given the responsibility of persuading people to become Christians. Our responsibility is to point them to the one in whom salvation is to be found. Now, moving on, verses 9 to 11. What happened when John the Baptist pointed people to Jesus? Verse 9, Jesus showed up. See the logic? After me will come one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I will baptize you with water. He will baptize you with Don't listen to me you need Jesus, you need Jesus. That was John's message. What happens when the Christian gospel is explained, pointing people to Jesus? 
Verse 9, Jesus shows up in somebody's life. That's the point. And it might even be as I stand here and explain the gospel that you in your heart are not listening to me, but you are encountering and experiencing Jesus Christ standing before you. That's how His Spirit works. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. So let's meet Jesus. He appears and is baptized with John. Now, if baptism is a visual sign of forgiveness, then why on earth is Jesus baptized? He does not need to repent. He does not need forgiveness because he has not sinned. So why is he baptized? To signal that he has come to identify with humanity's plight as sinners in need of forgiveness. And to signal also that he himself will save us from our sins. When he came up out of the water, verse 10, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The Holy Spirit descending on Jesus, and it's a physical thing Mark describes, something people would have seen. The Holy Spirit descending on Jesus is a sign that in Jesus' coming a new age has begun. Maybe it's meant to evoke Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, when the Spirit of God hovered over the face of of the waters. The Spirit descends on the Son of God and signals that with Him a new age has begun. The kingdom of God has broken in to the kingdom of this world. That's why Jesus says when He begins His public ministry in chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. With Jesus, a new age has begun, and a chain of events is put in motion that will lead to the cross, to the resurrection, to the reign, to the rule, and eventually to the return of Jesus when the kingdom of God will come in its fullness with a new creation. Another dimension of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at His baptism is to commission Jesus for his ministry. And key to that commissioning is the voice of God the Father. It's always helpful in the Bible when you want an explanation of what is happening when God himself speaks and tells you what's going on. So verse 11 is the voice of God. A voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And notice here who is on the stage, on the theater of history at this significant moment in history. Who is on the stage? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit were in concert at the creation of the world, Father, Son, and Spirit are in concert when the everlasting kingdom of God broke into this fallen world. And Father, Son, and Spirit will live in perfect harmony 
with perfect humanity when the kingdom of God comes again in all of its fullness. The whole of the Godhead is there when Jesus is commissioned. Now that phrase, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The clock is ticking. It's going faster today than normal. Let me just take a moment with that phrase to, to, to let you into the mind of Mark's original readers when they heard it. Jesus is baptized before these people. God speaks to Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And to those listening in that Judean countryside who knew the Scriptures of the Old Testament well, bells would begin to ring. Number one, you are my son, would have taken them to Psalm 2, the great messianic psalm that speaks of the son who would come as the king who would destroy the dominion of Satan. With you I am well pleased, would have taken their minds to the servant songs in Isaiah, when God spoke of his servant as one with whom he took delight and pleasure. And so before them in Jesus is the king who would destroy the dominion of this world. And so before them is the suffering servant who would lay down his life. The third line of prophecy that the voice from heaven picks up, the beloved son, Genesis chapter 22. God said to Abraham, Abraham, will you take the son whom you love and give him as a sacrifice for sin? And Abraham said, yes, I will do your will. And all of a sudden, before their eyes in Jesus, he is the king, he is the servant, he is the son whom God will give. He is the son who will willingly go to a cross, the beloved son. And then finally, verses 12 to 13, Jesus' conflict with Satan. Uh, your temptation as a preacher is to finish the sermon at verse 11, <laughs> kind of a high point. It's striking in the sound of music. It's in my mind, so I've got to tell you this. Act one of the sound of music ends with this wonderful big aria and everything's going to come right. Act two, the end of the sound of music ends with, if you know the story, the family going off into the mountains without any certainty. This little drama here in Mark chapter 1 ends with Jesus going out into the wilderness to engage with Satan. Just read it with me. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, 
And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. What is going on here? Why has Jesus come? He has come to destroy the dominion of Satan in this world. So what does Jesus do immediately? He is commissioned. He engages in conflict with Satan, who is the prince of this world. And Jesus will defeat him at the cross, finally and fully. Notice where the initiative lies here. It is not Satan who takes the fight to the Son of God. It is the Son of God who takes the fight to Satan. God always is on the front foot. Always is on the front foot. So when you and I engage in spiritual opposition, which will be inevitable over these coming years with the gospel project, we are never on the back foot. Always on the front foot. It'll feel like we're on the back foot, but the gospel is advancing. Always, always, always breaking through. Now, we'll learn these lessons wonderfully, I think, from Richard and Jen when they're here with us for six months. It's striking, I think, that as we engage in this project, Jen and Richard will be here with us to tell us what it's like when people meet Jesus for the first time when people explain the gospel to them. All these things God connects. Remember that last prayer point? Pray for protection from spiritual opposition. It is real and it will come. But the Son of God and the gospel of God is always on the front foot. And the gospel will advance. And so when we pray that God will be pleased to bring many people to faith in Jesus Christ. That is a prayer that is a confident, certain hope because it is God's delight to do that. But in all of this, our hearts need to be willing. Our hearts need to be soft. So sign the sheets at the back for the right reasons and engage with this and let God in His powerful spirit change our hearts change our culture as a church so that if he, he is pleased in the future to fill these empty seats with people who do not know Jesus but are hungry to know him he will have brought them to a church that is willing to embrace them and read the bible with them god will trust us with evangelism which is his greatest priority. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we engage with Mark's gospel over these coming weeks, that primarily on Sundays and indeed in our small groups, yes, we will learn how to explain this, but we pray, Lord, that we will rediscover the living Lord Jesus, that we will deepen our relationship and faith with him, that we will learn more of what he is like, and that out of sheer thanksgiving and love and joy, we will be liberated to share his message with many others. And we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.